Jeremiah 35. As we continue on in our study of this great prophecy, I think we've gone for so long in it, and and, uh, yet we still have a few chapters to go. We got till chapter 52, and so, but we're moving right along with uh, full chapters here. Jeremiah 35. Let me read to you the first 11 verses. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites, speak to them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. Then I took Jaazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habaziniah, his brothers, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, above the chamber of Maazeah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. And then I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups. And I said to them, drink wine. But they said, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, you shall drink no wine, you nor your sons, forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these. But all your days you shall dwell in tents that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, and all that he charged us to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have vineyard, field, or seed. But we have dwelt in tents, and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab our father commanded us. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came up into the land, that we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwell at Jerusalem. Now here's a tough question that Christians would rather not have to deal with. Are you a promise breaker or are you a promise keeper? Should it be that we deal with that question? Our thoughts may tend to rationalize a bit. (laughs) We may rationalize our fleshly propensity or inclination to break promises when not in the spirit. Or just consider it a tremendous and nearly impossible challenge to be one who can keep any promise whatsoever. Or else we just plead the fifth. We don't want to deal with the problem. We know what the answer would be. Can anybody be a promise keeper all the time? Well, let me just say at the outset that 
there is one promise keeper, and that's the Lord himself. And every promise he's given, he's kept. When dealing with the children of Israel, and even before then, going all the way back to Abraham, as a matter of fact, it wasn't a matter of him seeking someone to say to him, I'll keep the promises. He showed us that he alone would be able to keep any promise that was necessary for us to be in covenant with him. With Abraham, God fulfilled the covenant. For us, Jesus on the cross fulfilled the covenant for us. But the concept of man keeping promises, pledges or oaths or vows, it goes back to the law itself. And by the way, I'm not saying any of these things to say that, well, you know, God alone is a promise keeper and so it doesn't matter whether we are or not. No, it does. It matters quite a bit. But in Deuteronomy 23, it is very clear what it says about making a vow or a promise or a pledge. Deuteronomy 23:21 says, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. In other words, sin if you don't pay it. But if you abstain from vowing... It shall not be sin to you. That which is gone from your lips you shall keep and perform. For you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God which you have promised with your mouth. Now remember this. If you go through all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, there's, there's one major problem that the Lord says man has, and that, that's the problem of lying. And he says lies are a bad thing. As a matter of fact, it tells us in the scriptures that liars don't enter into the kingdom of heaven. So think then about the seriousness of making a vow or a promise or an oath or taking an oath or making a pledge and not keeping it. Immediately we are then finding ourselves to be liars rather than those who keep their word. So vows are taken seriously by God when made and then with great expectation that they be paid especially if vowed to God. A person was not to be slow in paying his or her vow. To delay would be construed as refusal to pay, and that was considered sin. Secondly, a person was to know that it was better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not to fulfill it. That's what verse 22 says. Uh, But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. If if you don't go around making vows, well, it's a lot better. Lastly, a person was to do exactly what he vowed or what he pledged. For all vows were freely made. You see, you weren't forced into making a vow. You made the vow freely on your own, uh, by your own will. They're never demanded by God. That's verse 23. They're not demanded. But if you make one, he wants you to keep it. And uh, uh, no, all vows, in other words, are voluntary, made of a person's own free will, not requested by God. No person is ever forced to make a vow or pledge to God. Consequently, when a pledge or vow is made, a person must keep his vow and pay his pledge.
pledge. His word, in other words. His word, his integrity, or his character is at stake. Our word, our character, our integrity is at stake when we make a vow. Now this is confirmed for us in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, when Solomon tells us, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Walk prudently, walk carefully, walk discerningly. When you go to the house of God and draw near to hear, rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. Don't be quick to make some kind of a pledge to God if you're not going to keep it. For God is in heaven, and you on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And then Jesus said these words in Matthew 5. Beginning at verse 33, Jesus said again, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black but let your yes be yes and your no no for whatever is more than these is from the evil one that's a particularly strong statement that Jesus makes but a good statement when he says you know don't go around making all these vows pledges go around swearing oh I swear to God I swear to God have you ever heard that I hope you haven't said it some people, you know, just say it. It's, a, it's an expression. But it's a dumb expression. Because are you really swearing to God? Jesus said, don't swear at all. He says, let your yes be a yes. And let your no be a no. So in essence, we don't have the power to keep oaths or promises or vows. You say, this is what Jesus is saying. We don't have the power to keep promises, oaths, or vows. We can't cause ourselves to grow another inch, can we? Nor can we change the color of our hair from within. I say from within because you can't change your color with Grecian formula or Clairol or whatever. But not from within. You can't change your hair color. And besides, we, can't, we, we can be taken or snatched away from this life at any moment. Isn't that true? At any moment, we can be taken. Therefore, this should cause us to live honestly. Cause us to live straightforwardly that our word alone is acceptable. Our word alone is acceptable. 
A yes is a yes, and a no is a no. Well, with these thoughts in mind, let's turn the clock back to Jeremiah's time. In fact, let's, let's go further back from where we were last time in chapter 34. Because in chapter 34, we were at the time of Zedekiah, which was the last king of Judah. Now we need to go back further between 11 to 20 years, somewhere maybe about 15 to 18 years previous to this, to Jehoiakim's reign. The king previous here to Zedekiah. Jehoiakim reigned from 609 to 598 B.C. So we're going back a little bit further. You see, we're not, we're not being chronological here with, with Jeremiah's prophecy. So as we come into chapter 35, it says the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim. So now he's taking us back. The son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites, speak to them. And bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. So he was to go out and find them in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, we know that they're in Jerusalem. He goes out to Jerusalem says, I want you to come into the temple with me. He brings them into the court of the, uh, into the courtyard of the temple and then takes them into one of the chambers. Meaning that one of these chambers was, uh, one of the uh, places where, uh, storage was, was done. We notice from the names that are given to us that they were assigned to certain uh, men uh, of the Levites or the priests. <clears throat> and then it says here, Then I took uh, Azaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habatzaniah, his brothers and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites, and I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, above the chamber of uh, Maaseiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. So uh, that's kind of specific, and it's not uh, all that important for us at this point to consider all of that. But then he says, I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine. Now, there were storage rooms in the temple for wine. So it wasn't a hard thing to get. And everything that was necessary for him to place before them was also available in the temple. Again, I want to say that the development of the narrative is thematic and it is not chronological. Because the whole idea is to contrast the unfaithful and inconsistent character of the children of Judah and of, uh, of Zedekiah in chapter 34 with the faithful, uh, faithfulness and the consistent character of the household of the Rechabites. In our last study, we saw how Zedekiah, movie, uh, you know, he was moved by the suffering upon Jerusalem by the siege of the Babylonians that he led the people to seek the Lord's favor in hopes to be delivered from their enemies. Hence, he committed the slaveholders to agree to free all of the Hebrew slaves that were held in bondage. But because they had selfish ulterior motives, eventually they would actually go back on their commitment to free the slaves. They freed them, and almost immediately, it would seem, they went and said, no, you're not free. You go back to your masters. And masters went and got their slaves and took away their freedom again. And what did this do? It sealed their judgment. It sealed the judgment upon the children of Judah. Jeremiah thirty four seventeen says, Therefore thus says the Lord, You have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, <clears throat> everyone uh, to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. But then he says, Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord. Liberty to the sword, the pestilence, and the famine, and I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. 
Because you see, they were unfaithful to their word. They set the slaves free. And then they took it back. They did something right, but they didn't stick with it. And now the Rehobites will serve as an object lesson to the nation. Jeremiah was to go to the house of the Rehobites and bring them to the temple. And in one of the rooms of the temple proper, he was instructed, he was as, as instructed by the Lord to give them wine to drink. Now, this is not a temptation. Please understand, because the Bible says that God tempts no one. The whole issue here is about showing the contrast between Zedekiah and the children of Judah and the Rechabites. But let's get to know a little bit about the Rechabites. First of all, they're not really Jewish. They were a nomadic people, much like the Bedouins are today. And quite possibly, <laughs> the Bedouins may still kind of be connected to the Rechabites, some of them anyway. Because uh, they were a nomadic people that were descendants of the Kenites. Now the Kenites are mentioned for us in First Chronicles chapter 2 in verses 54 and 55. It talks about the Kenites. The sons of Salma were Bethlehem, the Netophathites. Netophathites. <laughs> These are some tough names here. Atrothbeth Joab, half of the Manahithites, and the Zorites. Ah, I wish there was some stalactites and stalagmites in there. That's a lot easier to pronounce. And the families of the scribes who dwelt at Jabez were the Tirathites, the Shemaithites, and the Suchathites. These were the Kenites. So there's the Kenites who came from Hamath, the father of the house of Rechab. So this tribe, as it were, or group of people, could actually be traced all the way back to Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses. You go back to the book of Judges, chapter 1, verse 16. It says, now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law. So Jethro evidently was a Kenite. This was his tribe or his group. Uh, Went up from the city of Palms and with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. So the group is known first, as far as... uh, in a significant way, it is known from the story of uh, Jehonadab, or Jonadab, who was the son of Rahab, who, who assisted Jehu, uh, Jehu, the king of, Jeru- of Israel, in purging the prophets of Baal from Samaria. So, in actuality, this Jonadab, who is really the father of these Rechabites, uh, helped in purging out uh, the uh, Baal worshippers, or the idol worshippers in Samaria, you can read that in 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 50 through 28. So if you want to read that tonight, you can. And while they were not Jews, they had very close relationships with the Jews. So now as they all gather in this room with Jeremiah, the prophet places wine before them, and their response is quite interesting. Notice in verse 6. They said, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these. But all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. So you see, some 300 years earlier, Jonadab gave a command that his people should live nomadic lifestyles, not to have any permanent homes. 
not to drink any wine. Now some have thought that that might be some connection to a, a vow, like a Nazarite vow. And if it was, it was one that they kept for a long time. Uh, generation after generation, this had, had been passed on, and it had been kept. And this faithfulness, you see, again, almost 300 years earlier, and for almost 300 years, this obedience was going on, and it is going to be used now. That obedience of the Rechabites is being used as an object lesson against the southern kingdom of Judah, as we'll see shortly. Let's read on in verse 8. It says, Thus we've obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rahab our father, and all that he charged us to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have vineyard, field, or seed. But we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab our father commanded us. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land... That we said, come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwell at Jerusalem. So out of what they were, these armies were doing, of course, the main one was the Babylonians, the Syrians or the Syrians before that, were coming in and, 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 and actually just sweeping everybody up. Well, they didn't want that to happen to their own group of people. So they came into Jerusalem. And so that's where... Jeremiah would find them. The Rechabites informed Jeremiah that they had always been consistent. They had never broken their commitment. For nearly 300 years, they had never drunk wine. They never built houses. They didn't plant vineyards or crops. But they did live in tents. They had always obeyed every commandment their forefather and founder Jonadab had given them. The only reason they were in the city of Jerusalem at that time was because of the Babylonian invasion. But that was something that God did to bring them into place where Jeremiah could bring them into the temple. So these Rechabites certainly knew what it meant to be separate from the world. They knew what it meant to be separate from the world because this is something that we need to understand. What it means to be separate from the world and separated unto God and unto Christ. They knew what it meant to be strangers and sojourners. And that, that kind of language is something that we see throughout all of the scriptures, especially to the Christian, especially in the New Testament. Peter, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. A sojourner can simply be defined as one who is passing through. A sojourner is just one passing through. The same can be applied to the word pilgrim. What a time to mention pilgrims. Our kids have probably already made a pilgrim hat at school, you know. Unless that's politically incorrect now. Or buckles on their shoes. Big white ties with a black coat or whatever, you know. Well, think about those pilgrims for just a moment. They knew that they were just passing through. They had begun 
in Europe, uh, both in England and many of them also in Holland, suffering persecution for their belief in God and in Christ and in the Bible. And so they knew they were just passing through, but given the opportunity, they got on a ship and came over to the new world and settled in a place that wasn't theirs. And it it gives us a picture, really, of the Christian life. This isn't home. We used to think that the earth was our home, that the world is our home. Somewhere there's a little stake that we could go and place a flag on with our name on it and say, "This, this is mine, this is all mine. It's my world. But the moment we came to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, He gave us one great understanding about who we now belong to. And the very fact is that we don't belong to this world anymore. He says, you now are pilgrims and sojourners. You're just passing through this world. You're in it, but you're not of it. You are ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. This is not our home. Our home now is heaven. Our home now is the kingdom of God. Our home now is with Jesus Christ. Now he's going to have to come back and get us. <laughs> That's what we're waiting for, for him to come. But we, we don't belong to this world anymore. We're in it and we're to be good citizens, good sojourners, good pilgrims. We are strangers in the land, by the way. And I think we're becoming more and more like strangers than we've ever been. Why? Because the world is angry. And the world every day shows its anger more and more toward the Lord, toward God, toward the things of God, toward the Word of God, and toward the people of God. And the people who call themselves Christian. And to the people who call themselves the chosen people of God, the, the Jews. Strangers. That's what we are. And, and Peter says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. That, that's, the, that's the kind of... Uh, display of, of, of honor uh, of an honorable character that the Rechabites showed at a time when no one had good character no one had integrity in the uh, amongst the children of Judah and if there were there were very few there's always a remnant but there were more that showed uh, an ungodliness than a godliness In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, speaking of Abraham himself as a sojourner, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promises in a foreign country, notice, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You skip down to verse 13 and it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. 
And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So you see, all the way back to Abraham, we see that concept of of pilgrim and sojourner, of stranger in the land. And while Jeremiah was still with the Rechabites, the Lord explained the much-needed lesson. The Rechabites consistently, uh, or, or I should say the Rechabites' consistency was, was an example to the inconsistent people of Judah who broke their commitment to the Lord. Look at verses 12 through 14 now of Jeremiah 35. Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to obey my words, says the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rahab, which, or Rehab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are, are performed. For to this day they drink none, and obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, you do not obey me. And, and that uh, phrase we have seen before in the book of uh, Jeremiah. Rising early and speaking. That's God speaking through His prophets. Prophets always coming early and saying, here's the Word of God. Here's the Word of the Lord. This is what you need to listen to. This is what you need to obey. And instead of obeying the prophets, they did what they wanted to do. So you notice the contrast then that God is showing us here. The Rechabites were obedient to the voice of their earthly father. On the other hand, the southern kingdom of Judah was disobedient to their heavenly father. A pretty sad picture when you think about it. But even today, people will listen to the voice of man over the voice of God. People will listen more to the voice of man today than the voice of God. But the lesson of the Rechabites was simple. Be faithful to your commitments and obey the Lord's commandments. Obey His Word. Simple. A very prominent person in our country. The most prominent. I just heard on the radio today, playing cuts all the way back to the the last uh, election, presidential election. I believe in Jesus and I believe in God, but I also believe. In effect, he was saying, I also believe there are many other ways to God. That's not listening to the voice of God. And it's not listening to Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I've heard scientists on the radio this morning talking about the big argument between creation and evolution. And these, uh, particular, this particular scientist just written a book. I'm not going to recommend it. But uh, he's a Christian, and, and, but, but he says, but you know, God can use evolution, you see. 
That's listening to the voice of man, and it's not listening to what God says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mentioned six days using the one word yom that means day, 24-hour day, to describe the days in which he created the earth. And when he created the earth, and the issue again comes down to intelligent design. But when he created the earth, how much more intelligent can it be how he created it? How he put everything in place? That can't be answered today by evolutionists. So, people still want to listen more to man than to the voice of God. But the lesson of the Rechabites, again, is simple. Be faithful to your commitments. And obey the Lord's commands. Obey his word. This was not a matter of commending them for their personal standards, but for their faithfulness to their father's command. The message to the nation was clear. If the command of a mere man, Jonadab, was respected and obeyed by his family for over two centuries, why didn't the people of Israel and Judah obey the, the command of Almighty God? A command that the prophets have repeated over and over and over and over again. So we come to verse 15 now of our text, and it says, I have also sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way, amend your doings, and do not go after other gods to serve them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers, but you have not inclined your ear nor obeyed me. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard, and I have called to them, but they have not answered. God's words, and please understand this, God's words were not to punish his people or to rob them of pleasure. God's words, the keeping of those words, would result in blessing in their lives. That, that's been the bottom line of, of, of obedience from Genesis to Revelation. If you will obey me, I will bless you. If you will keep my commandments, I will bless you. Very simple. But the problem, if we can call it a problem, is that we let the patience and long-suffering of God cause us to come to the wrong conclusion. Either God can't do anything about our actions, or God doesn't care what we are doing, or even worse, that God condones our actions. But if you continue to reject His words, His warnings, Judgment will come for your disobedience. And instead of the blessings that God desires for you, you will be cursed. As the Lord said in Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and 20, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have said before you life and death. I want you to notice the picture. God says, I I said before you life and death. 
blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. You know, he's not trying to trick anybody. He's not Monty Hall and let's make a deal. How many of you remember Monty Hall? Only a few of us. It's, it's not this thing about what's behind door number one, two, and three. God is making this very clear. Behold, I, I put before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life. It's like he says, the big prize is behind door number one. Choose door number one. Making no bones about it. And he's then telling everybody. He's not telling the one contestant that's standing there worrying as to what number it is. It makes it very clear. Choose life. Choose life. That both you and your descendants may live. That's not a threat. What he's saying is, I want you to have life. And I want you to teach your family about life. And I want you to teach their families about life. Because I'm a God of life, not a God of death. That you may love the Lord your God. And I want you to notice the emphasis on certain things. That you may love the Lord your God. That you may obey His voice. That you may cling to Him. For He is your life and the length of your days. And that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Choose life. What is your choice? What choice are you making, you see? Do we choose to be promise breakers? Or do we choose to be promise keepers? Lastly, in verses 18 and 19, it says, And Jeremiah said to the house of of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. In other words, that line, that family will always be represented before God. Interesting blessing, isn't it? They weren't Jewish when they started out. (laughs) Jonadab was a man who set an example that his family followed for generations to come. He taught them what to do and then he lived it. Folks, If we are parents, if we are adults that have an opportunity to be an example to others, listen carefully. Jonadab set an example that his father, uh, I'm sorry, his family did follow for generations. Taught him what to do and lived it himself. Because setting an example is supposed to be a daily experience. It is supposed to be a way of life. Setting an example is a way of life. Consider the things that the Apostle Paul teaches the church. In Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 through 9, uh, Paul says, Children, 
Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. That it may be well with you and, and you may live long on the earth. That, that's very much the same promise that was given in choosing life. Honor your father and your mother and it comes with a promise. If you do so, it will be well with you. It's a blessing. But then it says, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. But bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And that's not something you get out of a book except for this book in front of us. It is taking this book, the Bible, it is taking it and making it a part of your life and then you living that Bible out, you living the Word of God out as the training and admonition to your children, to your sons, to your daughters, the light and the example of God's Word lived out in you. Don't just tell me about Christianity. Be a Christian. Don't just tell them what the stories of, are in the Bible. Live them out in your life. And then it says this. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. With fear and trembling and sincerity of heart. As to Christ, not with eye service as men pleaders, pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. With goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven. And there's no partiality with him. Go back all the way to the book of Deuteronomy, something you hear every time we dedicate children here at the, at the church is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. The Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. I don't know if you notice this or not, but it, how do we tie together what Paul said in Ephesians with what uh, the Lord is saying in Deuteronomy 6? It is the word from the heart. It is the word, the heart. And here again it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Jewish people to this day seek to follow these particular words. They bind as a sign on their hand uh, these little phylacteries. They tie them around them, little boxes that contain the Word of God in them. And they'll pull one. Sometimes you see them, you know, the, the Orthodox with a box on their head right there, a little black box that has God's Word in it. They bind that around their head because they're just doing what the Word of God says. They write them on the doorposts of their house. The mezuzahs. There's two mezuzahs as you go out the doors here. You see them. It has the Word of God in it. It's constant reminder of what's supposed to be here. Not just in the house, but here. In the most important house that we have. The heart that God gave us to live for Him. God promised that because of their obedience to their father, the Rehobites would always be before God. 
There would always be a Rechabite before God. And when the people would come back from Babylon and rebuild Jerusalem, the Rechabites were there. Nehemiah records who helped in the rebuilding of the wall. Nehemiah 3.14 says, Malkiah, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of, of Beth Hakerim, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. So even there, it, it, it's a sign that says there was going to always be a Rechabite before God. And so according to Jewish traditions, the Rechabites were incorporated into the Jewish population and given special duties in the temple after the return from the Babylonian exile. That's why I said, they, while they weren't Jews when they started out, they were brought in into the, into the people of Israel. And so we're to be consistent before the Lord. God demands consistency and He demands faithfulness. And as we walk through life day by day, we are to obey God's Word. We're to live righteously. We're to keep our commitment to follow Him. And if we profess the name of the Lord, we should walk just as He walked. And we should live again. We should live righteously. In other words, do what is right and stick to it. Do what is right and stick with it. Be consistent from beginning to end in your life. You know, a lot of us have given up a lot of sins. I mean, you know, we, we just don't want to do them anymore. The Lord has put some kind of a thing in us that says, you know, that's a distasteful thing to do and we don't do them anymore. But then we realize the more we grow in love with Jesus, the more we find things that we need to deal with. And one of the things we need to deal with as believers in Jesus Christ, even as mature believers, is our consistency or lack of. I'm not being consistent in something. Well, that just says I need to work on it. And so all of us here, every one of us, has something to work, with, work on as we're heading toward that heavenly city. And we're looking for the day of Jesus Christ. No one is perfect. Paul even said that of himself. I haven't attained perfection, but this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I look forward. I press on. I press toward the high call, the, the high mark of the call of God in Christ Jesus. I press toward it. He says, I agonize toward it. I press toward it as an athlete presses on toward the finish line toward the victory. Let me leave you with a few encouragements here about that from the Scriptures. Romans 6, 4, Paul says, Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life, you see. Walking in newness of life. Romans 8, 1 says, There, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I want you to notice the operative word in all of these passages is the word walk. What is a walk in the Scripture? It is your life lived out. Our walk is our character lived out. Our walk is everything that we do as believers. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep 
the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. John writes in 1 John 1, 6-9, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lastly, 1 John 1 John 2 verse 6 says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. The walk is our conduct. The walk is our conduct in this world. Everything we just read in Romans and Ephesians and in John, 1 John, is about our conduct as believers. A consistent life. A consistent walk, a faithful walk, a faithful life. Every day, we can get up and say, Lord, help me to have a consistent walk today. Help me to find those places of inconsistency that I may work, Lord God, toward making those things fall into place with your word, in your love, and in your grace, so that you will be honored and glorified by every step that I take. So, let your yes be a yes. Let your no be a no. Don't be swearing to God. I swear to God. Just say, Lord, today I surrender to you. I submit my life to you. Lead me. Guide me. And use me. Let's pray.